Good evening, Boston. Welcome to BNN News. I'm Faith Mathedon. Thanks for tuning in. The women of High Park got their sweat on as they trained in self-defense, thanks to an MMA studio committed to preparing women for anything. Let's go. Let's hear that leather. I'm not hearing leather. Let's go. Come on. You got it. Don't mess with these ladies. In High Park, women of all ages are throwing punches and jabs as they work up a sweat at All One MMA Boxing Studio, where they learn the essentials of self-defense. After getting warmed up and limber, they're taken through the fundamentals of form by MMA trainer and owner Paul Rosado. And he's serious about preparing women for potentially dangerous encounters, in addition to getting their cardio on. The program is geared for women to come and train and feel safe and build a community. In here, they're learning how to defend themselves. They actually are learning a different skill on how to develop themselves in different ways, from aspects of getting in shape, self-defense, and building their confidence. And confidence is key when you're giving your all in the gym. But the environment at All One MMA is considered a safe space by the women who participate. When women normally come in the first time around, you can tell they're a little bit timid, a little bit unsure of what to expect. But as the class progresses, you can see how they gain more confidence and they become a little bit more sure in their abilities. As they keep coming and progressing, they'll get stronger, more confident, and get a little bit of an ability to defend themselves as well. And they feel like they can take care of themselves if they have to. I came out of this class today feeling so much more energized um, and more confident about my physical abilities to be able to defend myself. Um, especially in today's world, and I think that I, I feel more prepared to go out there um, and, and defend myself, and I feel like today, in today's class, the instructor, the people here today were so, so great and so supportive and so encouraging, and it was just a really enjoyable um, experience. The sport of boxing takes time, skills, and dedication, but the importance of camaraderie and encouragement from your fellow boxers cannot be overstated in a class like this. It's a lot harder than I expected. Um, it exceeded my expectations. It's a lot of cardio and a lot of coordination, so but it was a lot of fun at the same time, you know, work, working as a camaraderie with all the other women that came. You know, we were all encouraging each other, um, they, um, encouraging each other to like, dig deep, keep going, because there were times that I was like, I can't do this, but, you know, mind over matter. So I think we all did pretty good. When you walk out of a place with a little more confidence and self-esteem than when you walked in, something very positive is going on. And that was evident Wednesday night with the women at All One MMA in Hyde Park. Prepare yourself for longer commutes and more items than usual on sidewalks through September 4th. Given all that, it's an exciting time for new students as they go through this Boston Rite of Passage. It's that time of year, moving day, when Boston welcomes its latest crop of college students settling into their new digs. But first, they must brave limbo. I think it's just a bit difficult, I think mostly because we have to move all our stuff out and find somewhere to store them for the overnight, and then we have to just move down the street tomorrow. So if it could all just happen in one day, that would be the most helpful thing, but I know that that's just kind of tough. Everyone has different schedules, but honestly, it's thankfully I live close, so it's not a big hassle for me, but for those who are from out far, it's, I think, really tough. Yeah, I think it's a huge pain. 
overall because you have to be out by August 31st and then you can't move in somewhere else until September 1st. So basically, the whole city of Boston is homeless for a night. You know, not literally, but it just causes a pain when you're having to coordinate your own move out, your own move in, and then the current, the new tenants who are coming in. Um, it's a lot to coordinate. And then you're dealing with the traffic on the road, a lot of cars, a lot of closures. U-Haul's always hitting the overpass on Starro Drive. Uh, I think that's the general idea of it. Trash, closures, and congestion are neighborhood norms heading into the long Labor Day weekend. And U-Hauls might as well be unicorns for those clearing out their apartments. As we're international students, we're not able to drive trucks properly. So getting a U-Haul is also a bit of a hassle as it's all booked right now. And we, we went back to our country and we just came like a few days back. So uh, all the, uh, the U-Hauls were booked. So now we're just having trouble finding something to transport our luggage. Uh, it's been a bit of a pain. But if you're really lucky, you just might find a parental hand. I think everyone's cooperative. People have rotated the vans. As you know, we're using this rental property for a couple days. But it's, it's an exciting day because you're looking at your children, they're moving into a new place, rising senior. It's going to be a fun day, too, at the same time. So good luck, students. And may this momentary discomfort give way to a great semester and Epsom salts. Boston Transportation Department has implemented on-street parking restrictions on streets in Alston, Fenway, Mission Hill, and Roxbury to help provide parking spaces for vehicles being used by new residents and students moving into those areas. So be mindful to read posted signs to avoid citations. For more information on street and parking restrictions, as well as trash removal and rental requirements, please visit boston.gov forward slash moving. Finally, students and new st residents can connect with the Boston 311 to report non-emergency issues and request housing inspections. Here are the ways to get in touch. Phone. By calling 617-635-4500. Online. By visiting boston.gov forward slash 311. And app. By downloading the BOSS 311 app available on Google Pay and iOS stores. Last Wednesday, Mayor Michelle Wu, joined by city public health leaders, announced ambitious plans to rebuild the Long Island Bridge and a new vision to renovate the Long Island campus. Armed with Chapter 91 license, the mayor is eager to get to work in addressing the needs of the unhoused and those on the path of addiction recovery. The area known as Mass and Cass, the intersection of Massachusetts Avenue and Melnia Cass Boulevard, has been in crisis for many years. The city's struggle in addressing the collision of mental health, homelessness, and substance use disorders only worsened with the shutdown of the Long Island Bridge and treatment facilities in 2014. Since then, patients of the island were relocated to the South End neighborhood, which has the largest concentration of shelters and methadone clinics in the city. In a press conference last Wednesday, the mayor shared her long-term solution to the charged debate on how to help Boston's unhoused and addicted. There is $40 million set aside in this current budget for stabilization of the buildings. As you have seen, if you were walking around uh, and, and getting a sense, there's water damage and, and other uh, changes to the infrastructure that we know will be necessary no matter what programming will be inside. Um, and then we also have $83 million set aside for bridge construction as we get underway, um, having secured the 
DEP permit, uh, the Department of Environmental uh, Protection permit, two weeks ago, and are finishing the last few steps in in that um, process to make sure we have all of the approvals that are necessary. Completion of the new bridge is estimated to take four to five years. Public health leaders are determined to have better communication between mainland services and the new facility. What we're looking for is to create something that's truly synergistic with what is available on the mainland. You know, we want to build a continuum of care for people. We want to think about social determinants of health. So we want to think about workforce development. What does it mean for somebody to be able to return to life? You know, what, what are the skills that they need? And really think about how we could use this land to build something that um, would, help, would help folks get back on the road, on the road to recovery. With 35,000 square feet of campus available for redevelopment, the city hopes to build upon the island's services, which once provided shelter to 700 people daily. The initiative represents a new coordinated effort to provide a safe space for a vulnerable community and alleviate the stress currently on the South End. For so many people who are living on the street and struggling with substance use disorder, they're just working to stay safe overnight and be able to get a meal and uh, kind of survive from one, one hour to the next. I think the, the vision of something like a Long Island campus is to provide people with treatment for substance use disorder and also a place to stabilize, a place, place where they can sleep at night, eat, uh, not be afraid of being assaulted. And it really provides the opportunity for some hope and for people to get their feet under them again. If you're trying to recover from any illness, mental health, addictions, physical illness, your surroundings make a big difference. So if we can create a recovery environment on Long Island that is healing, soothing, clinically supportive of people, that's the key thing. That's what we're looking for. If you're going from a shelter bed uh, overnight out in the street at 7 in the morning when it's 18 degrees, you're going to have a tough time getting employed, getting your needs met. So this Long Island Recovery Center model is really going to be state-of-the-art and we just couldn't be more excited. Long Island and Boston Harbor was used as a rehabilitation campus for those struggling with addiction and homelessness since 1928. But in 2014, the bridge leading to the island was closed due to neglect from a lack of maintenance. But the impact of the program lives on through those whose lives were transformed. Brendan Little is a consultant, writer, documentary filmmaker, and former patient at Long Island. Upon recovery, he was the founding policy director for the Mayor's Office of Recovery Services and served on Massachusetts Opioid Recovery and Remediation Fund Advisory Council. Brendan is currently working on a documentary about the Mass and Cass area. His lived experience with substance abuse and homelessness incorporates his past challenges into his work. He joined BNN via Zoom to discuss the Long Island Bridge and his experience as a patient there. Enjoy the interview. I'd like to start with uh, your experience. Uh, can you share uh, your experience as a teen who once sought treatment at Long Island and what led you there? Sure. Um, so I had a troubled adolescence. Uh, I started using substances um, really young, um, was a runaway, sleeping on the streets um, very young, starting at 13, um, 14 years old. and. Um, I was court ordered um, to Long Island uh, to a program called Project Rebound, um, which was a um, drug treatment facility for juveniles. And at first, you know, um, I was scared to go somewhere. I didn't understand where it was, never been there, you know, didn't kind of 
you know, I was born and raised in Roslindale, Jamaica Plain in the city and um, didn't really know much about uh, Long Island. So when I was sent out there, I've, I really remember I was sent out there around evening time and um, I just remember how beautiful it was, even though I was going to this place and I was feeling anxious and nervous and, um, you know, a little confused. Um, I instantly remember just how beautiful the the long drive over the bridge was and um, the campus there. Um, there's a lot of green space, a lot of trees. Um, there's farmland over there. So all that combined with these ocean views, even though it was not like a great period of my life, I was really grateful to be surrounded by all that beautiful um, scenery. And, um, you know, it made an impact on me. Mm. And how would you say the facilities on the island helped you? <clears throat> I think um, I wasn't at that, that specific program for very long, uh, for various reasons. But um, the thing that sticks out to me the most is that um, it was the beginning of my recovery journey. The way I describe recovery to people is it's like, <clears throat> it's not linear. Um, so it's, you know, it, you'll take one little grain of wisdom from somebody uh, at one point and then further down the road, you'll take a, another grain of wisdom from somebody. And then, <clears throat> excuse me. And then one day uh, um, you'll be able to put it all together and kind of string it along. And it's, and it's something more sustainable that you can hold. Um, so to me, again, I think what sticks out to me more than anything was um, there were caring adults there. Uh, there was a really amazing guy named Earl who worked there, who I didn't have a coat at the time and it was winter. And I remember he, he stopped by his house in Roxbury and gave me one of his old coats um, that I had. Um, so like small details like that. And you, you just touched on it. Um, on your recovery journey, you went on and returned back to the island to help others in need. Why was it important to you to give back in this way? And what would you say that you've learned as you've counseled others? I think um, it was important for me because it was really the thing that, frankly, I just felt the most charged and energized by, the work that I felt the most driven to do. Um, I'd like to say that it was like, I felt I owed it. <laughs> I think there was some element of that, but I think that frankly, it's just the thing that I do the best for work is when I, and I'm, I'm helping people, especially people who have been overlooked by systems or, um, you know, by other people. Uh, so when I was working on the island, I was working with uh, court and gang involved youth for the city of Boston. Mm. And... I was supervising youth on the farm out there. So we were all working and I worked just as hard as they did out on the farm. And we're all city kids out there, you know, harvesting potatoes and carrots and onions. And so, um, yeah, to me, it, I think it was a, the only, it's the only thing that I know how to do that I really care about for work is, is helping others that were in similar circumstances. But it's also really healing for me, you know, to kind of do that full circle thing and and come back to a li the literal place that I was at when I was, you know, in crisis as a teenager, as an empowered adult. There's mm. something healing about that to like drive onto the island with my own hands and in, in a car where right. I was driven. Um, there's something that's healing about that. 
Yeah, it sounds incredibly therapeutic and definitely a two-way street of you receiving and the students also receiving. So um, that's very beautiful. And last week, uh, the mayor announced plans to rebuild the bridge and renovate the Long Island campus. What do you make of her plans and what things would you like to see implemented in the, the new facilities at Long Island? I'm very excited to hear about her plan. Uh, I'm, I'm excited that they're really trying to fast track it and that they haven't given up on it. I very much applaud Mayor Wu because I think that another mayor might have said, forget it, this thing's been mired in lawsuits and you know, all this time's gone by and the buildings are decrepit. And you know, I, I understand all the challenges because it was once my job when I worked at the city to, to think about this stuff. Um, but I really applaud how much um, she's prioritized this. Um, I would like to see a coordinated recovery campus. What was out there before was just kind of a smattering of programs that didn't really have much thought. They just kind of put stuff out there over the years. So there was no strategy. There was no cohesiveness. And there was like a youth DYS out there. There's a men's homeless shelter. You know, there's a youth uh, treatment center, just kind of like it didn't make a lot of sense. Um, hmm. And I think that right now we're well positioned because there's so many other services that have been embedded within the community. And the area that we know as Mass and Cass has been in crisis for some time, what do you believe that people fail to understand about the individuals who are currently there and are struggling with substance use disorder? I think that there's a lot of misconceptions about the area. But the biggest one, I think, is um, that people are this, these kind of mindless zombies out there um, and that they're all criminals or people just drive by and they say, oh, that's so sad. Um, and I understand it's not easy to look at. I really understand that. Um, it, you can see people who are struggling, people who look maybe dirty or they don't look healthy or people publicly injecting. These things are not... Um, you know, the most common thing that people want to see. It's not comfortable for people to see. Hmm. But I think what I, what I always challenge people to do is to try to look a little closer at why are all these people down here? And um, yes, there's a drug market, um, but I think it's also a, a massive service center. You know, there's hmm. so many services down there that have been there for nearly 100 years, some of them. Um, Boston City Hospital, Boston Medical Center um, has been there. It's been the hospital for the poor and low-income people in this city for forever. Um, so yes, there's a drug market that draws people, but there's also a strong community. And I think so many of the people that are down there that I know and, and have been working with over the last several years are, you know, their families have given up on them. Their mm -hmm. friends have given up on them because of the struggles they've gone through. I haven't met one person down there who doesn't have an extensive trauma history and history of poverty for the most part. Um, so what happens is those people who have been discarded by society for the most part are banding together. And as imperfect and as uh, not uh, pretty as that can be sometimes, it, it's people trying to be together and trying to, to find some sort of community in a community that increasingly doesn't want anything to do with them. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that insight, Brendan. And 
I also know that you're working on a documentary in relation to Mass and Cass. Can you share what you're exploring and what you hope to um, accomplish with this piece? Yes, so I'm currently working on a, a, a documentary film about Mass and Cass uh, with uh, the blessing of the city and with some uh, funding from the Rise Massachusetts Foundation. Um, and really what we're trying to do is lift up the stories that we feel are not usually covered um, by the media or covered by, um, you know, people who are, are paying attention to the area. Um, I think that so often, as with most forms of um, storytelling, it's the people who are the most disenfranchised, um, the most um, abused or um, th that face the most hardships in our society that are not given a voice or people speak for them or there's one person that's pulled out and lifted up as the token person for the whole community. And really what we're trying to do is spend a lot of time down there listening, paying attention to people, but also trying to show the complexities down there, that it's okay. not, you know, that I think everybody who has their opinion about it can have blinders on, you know, even if they're the most progressive, like I consider myself somebody who's very progressive, you know, when I'll, I'll then talk to a business owner and understand a little bit more about what they're going through and, mm -hmm. you know, open my mind a little bit more. So I think what we're really trying to do is is um, spend some time doing a deep dive so that people can watch the film in the future whenever it's done. And they might not agree with everything that's said, but they'll know it's the truth and all its messiness and all its complexities and, and all its nuance. Um, that's what our hope is. Well, it's important work, and I'm really grateful that you are bringing in people and shining light on this issue. Brendan Little, consultant, writer, and filmmaker, thank you so much for your time and for sharing um, your experience. Thank you so much for having me. As the city of Boston looks for solutions to the homelessness crisis, Mayor Wu has announced a city ordinance to create new housing resources and expand enforcement authority to address safety concerns in Newmarket Square, with the goal to return Atkinson Street to road usage for car traffic. Boston City Council will collaborate with the Boston Police Department to prohibit tents, tarps, and other temporary structures that prevent providers from delivering services to individuals in need and mask dangerous activity in the area. Mayor Wu and the Boston Public Health Commission also shared plans to create additional shelter beds, temporary overnight space, and to relocate temporary medical services to unsheltered residents. Police Commissioner Michael Cox outlined plans for officer sustained presence on Atkinson Street and throughout the city in order to reduce violent crime associated with the Mass and Cass area. The order was born from recent concerns over the prevalence of large tents and tarps, some of which are as large as 1,600 square feet, and the role these structures play in rising criminal activity impacting the area. The plans to overhaul these structures have faced backlash from residents who feel that displacing unsheltered individuals will not solve the issues at hand and that the city has not allocated enough resources for the plans to be successful. The mayor's office has not responded to their claims. 
Sasha Goodfriend is a community organizer, curating feminist and queer experiences through partnerships with statewide government, community organizations, and creatives alike. She works to advance this mission through her roles as executive director of the Massachusetts chapter of the National Organization for Women. Mass Now, a community organizer consultant with the Boston Tenant Coalition and Our Bodies Ourselves, and serves as a board member with the Transgender Emergency Fund and member of Massachusetts Commission on LGBTQ Youth. Sasha stopped by the studio to share current initiatives at Mass Now to support the women of our state. Here's our conversation. Is Mass Now, and how does the organization support women in the state? MassNow is a grassroots feminist organization that has been fighting for feminist policy for over 50 years. We are member-led and are fighting for over 40 different bills at the State House and also do education amongst our feminist community around intersectional feminism. Beautiful. Intersectional is a word that we're hearing a lot more uh, used these days. How would you define intersectional feminism and what are some of the issues that MassNow is working to address right now? Intersectional feminism is a way to describe thinking about people not just through one lens of gender, but recognizing that we all have very different parts of our lived experience that contribute to how we experience gender, including race, class, ability, um, size, the list goes on. And when we can validate and see all of those different parts of our identity, we can have a better strategy to finding both gender equity and racial equity and social justice in general. Mm. And um, what are some of the issues that MassNow is working right now? So the top of our legislative agenda right now is fighting for a bill that is called the I Am Bill. I am is an acronym for increased access to menstrual products. And if passed, this bill would make menstrual products, uh, tampons or pads, no cost to all students in schools and all shelters and incarcerated facilities statewide. So important. And can you tell us a little bit about the Massachusetts Menstrual Equity Coalition? Yeah, we started the MME Coalition in 2019 when we worked with our lead sponsors to introduce this bill to bring together all of the different stakeholders and volunteers that are working on the ground to identify period poverty and work to fill those gaps so that together we can communicate this issue, which is not a new issue, People have been experiencing period poverty forever. It's just new to talk about and use our combined forces to communicate to the legislature how we have examples of best practices here in Massachusetts already. And we should be taking a stand to make sure that statewide people have access to these products. And since you just mentioned it, uh, period poverty, can you break down what that is and who in Boston is affected by it? Yeah, period poverty is not being able to afford menstrual products. Sometimes period poverty looks like using unhygienic substitutes for menstrual products, like using toilet paper or socks or rags for menstrual products. And these are experiences that are so common because these products are not free. They're often um, 
for sale in bathrooms or even school nurses sometimes have to charge students for these products. Mm. And so there's a lot of internalized silence and shame around menstruation that has stopped people from realizing that this um, practice of having to use unhygienic substitutes or using the same product for too long, these are all experiences of what period poverty looks like. Mm. And how can we stop the stigma around menstruation? The best thing we can do to stop the stigma around menstruation is talk about periods and take periods out of the closet. Um, so sometimes that could be talking about the funny things about periods. Um, sometimes that could be just talking about different products. There's so many more products that are out there now. Um, it also means talking about menstruation education. And in Massachusetts, in our health ed frameworks, which are currently from 1999, but even in the newly proposed health frameworks for Massachusetts schools, there's no menstruation mention of menstruation education. Wow. So young people, people get their periods for the first time all the time and think that they are dying because they don't know what's happening to them. How can viewers learn more about MassNow and get involved? So MassNow is a member-led organization. We thrive on the support of our volunteers, and so there is room for anyone to get involved. You can go to our website, massnow.org, to become a member and see our different volunteer opportunities, whether it's with the Massachusetts Menstrual Equity Coalition or Fighting for Comprehensive Sex Ed or Universal Child Care. There's a number of different issues that we're working on, and there's something for everyone to take action. Thanks for tuning in, Boston. That's our broadcast for tonight. For BNN News, I'm Faith Mathodon, and I'll see you next Friday.